This is Raising Reconciliation. By hearing, by listening, we search for understanding and solutions concerning issues affecting multiple indigenous communities. This is a collaboration between Mount Royal's Iniskem Center and the Calgary Journal. In this episode, No More Kids in Care, you'll be hearing three perspectives on the state of childcare for indigenous communities. My name is Desiree Pegan, and I am Dene Cree from Muscatchewan and Cold Lake. Um, I'm in social work right now at Mount Royal University. I'm also a facilitator for intergenerational trauma and um, psychoeducation for our people. I'm also I've also started my own organization, a spiritual holistic one called Lightheart Ascensions, and it is based upon uh, healing and restoring our spirit and our culture and identity, whatever that may be. It's it's very inclusive. Sukapi. Mm-hmm. Sukapi means good. Uh, my name is Roy Berchi. I'm from uh, Siksika. But I, I've been in the city uh, almost uh, 39 years. Uh, I came here in uh, 1991. I graduated from uh, Mount Roy. It was a college back then. In 1994, with a diploma in social work. Then I got my bachelor's and my master's at the uh, uh, University of Calgary. Then I I started off over at the Bissett School of Business as a as a elder in residence back in 2017. Yeah, July 2017. Then I just started with. Uh, Child Studies and uh, Social Work Department uh, last uh, September 2018. My title there is Espomhita. Uh, Espomhita means uh, helper in my, in my language. And that's what I see myself as, as a helper. I hope to see in my lifetime that uh, my statement of... Uh, no more children in care. I like to see that that happen, I hope, in my lifetime, that no more children in care. Because I really believe that First Nations uh, communities are quite capable of uh, looking after their own children. So I'm Peter Choate. Um, I'm an associate professor of social work here at Mount Royal University. Um, and uh, last year, 2017-2018, I was a member of the child intervention panel um, looking at the uh, legislation in Alberta. Um, I, I sort of perceive my, my role is um, uh, because I'm a settler, um, come from a long multi-generational settler family that uh, my role is um, to disrupt the, um, the uh, dominant culture's view of what child intervention is about. Um, and uh, my role is not to develop the answers uh, because I don't think it's the role of the, uh, of the dominant culture to do that, but I think it's the role of, the social, of social workers in the dominant culture to disrupt. 
if we really want to talk about about child welfare, let's get to the root of. Let's get the really down to it, you know. And hopefully, some things will be filtered up up to where it's supposed to be. For me, it was Sixaga. Sixaga had a tripartite agreement since 1973. That's 46 years ago. When I look back at it, my thinking is, has anything changed? Just like the saying about, has my people, the parents, are they giving, being given a designation such as, hey, you're good enough to be a parent now? That's the bottom line. To me, I, I, I don't think we've been given consideration as to be told, yes. Which means you could raise your child now. Mm. You know. And they talk about way, way back uh, with child welfare, they talk about non-interference. <laughs> what, what does that look like, non-interference, you know? I'd rather say, these are fair. Let us do it. We, we know how to do things. You know, just give us a, give us room, give us resources. We will do it on our own. Mm-hmm. However, when that, when, when it becomes an accountability statement like that, then it's up to respective First Nations to say, well, we've said we will do it on our own when we have to go out and prove it, right? So for us First Nations, we go out and uh, it's just too cheap and we will do it. Again, that's it. Do you know, this whole child welfare has been a thorn on my side. Mind you, I had lots of opportunities to work in child welfare. My own people say, tell me, Roy, you've got your, your uh, social work degree, come and help us. I'm saying no. I already went through a residential school system. I don't want to go through another system where, hey, I'm the one taking a child into care. Taking a six-year-old into care and then 10, 15 years down the road, I look at that same, same child and wonder what happened to the child. You know, I don't want to be Never wanted to be a process, be part of the process, you know. Other workers saying, well, Roy, you know, I disagree with what you say. Well, fine. Because if you look at the notion of in the best interest of the child, if you function under that notion of in the best interest of the child, to me that, that justifies what's being done, taking a child I'm taking the child into care in the best interest of the child. That's, that's what it is. I actually grew up in foster care. Um, with in ex- Not in Siksika, oh. in uh, Saskatchewan and in Edmonton. I was the long-term ward of the system. Um, mm-hmm. I've experienced 
a tremendous amount of trauma, abuse, and neglect within the system. But also I've, I've experienced healing in some retrospect in terms of being in placed in a group home for girls who the, um, the foster parents were actually indigenous and they had uh, credentials in addictions counseling. And, and that was where I started my journey to heal. Um, in terms of I did go through those patterns and cycles of transgenerational trauma and abuse within the system, but um, through healing myself and getting help and support, in many different ways, I, I'm now in social work. I'm now a facilitator um, with an agency that supports indigenous and awareness and healing in many ways. And also, um, I, I do, I'm very supportive of our people and healing, and I do understand those gaps within the system because I've had my own experience as well. And I believe and know that when we start to heal within ourselves and we connect with our culture, our identity, and our heart and the love within our hearts, that's how the true healing happens. And um, my own story accounts for that. And not only that, being in social work, I've experienced the shifts and changes and being on the other side of that perspective now from before when I was in foster care. I've experienced group homes. I've experienced being in homes with my relatives. I've experienced all the different types of homes. And it's not all rainbows and sunshine. Um, our people, they have embedded um, intergenerational trauma that creates addiction you know, poverty, suicide, um, mental, emotional disturbances within them. And if they are not able to take care of their, their next of kin, like we need more resources so that we can prevent intervention. Um, and that's what we need. We need to come from a place of, of helping support those parents um, reintegrate their identity, culture, and their spirit back within. And I wouldn't be who I am today and doing what I, I love. I love to support our people and to help heal and show that awareness and that awakening of others to, to change, you know, heart, mind, body, soul, spirit, and, and support youth, even in care. Like that's from those experience, I, I understand and I know and how we can change that and, and, you know, bringing that to all the people and not blaming or anything, but coming to a place of understanding and supporting each other, even with the systems, because they're there. You know, we're here, they're there. We need to be able to support and come away from blaming or shaming or whatever it is, because that's not helping the youth. And like you had said, the youth are, they come first, right? The children, they come first. And I agree 100% with that. I think when we're when we're talking about the two systems, like I went through the residential school, you went through the foster care system, mm -hmm. and you mentioned uh, things like yes, being in different homes, foster foster children children going through some uh, as mm -hmm. many as uh, from my readings as many as. 20 to 30 different uh, placements, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's a lot, you know. That is. 
But for me, I, I from the uh, residential school, it's just the, the, I guess we could say the one big house, which is the uh, residential school that, I mean, I was there for 10 years, you know. However, one good thing about it was uh, I, I, I didn't fully, I, I didn't uh, lose my language. Mm. But I lost a lot of my the culture, which is what I'm reconnecting to, is, is the culture itself. With uh, some of the, uh, the foster kids, I think, uh, losing the, the language and the culture. Mm-hmm. Because when, once, you, once you leave the system, then uh, in a sense you have to refine yourself or relocate yourself by trying to go back Mm -hmm. and looking at where you came from. My my older brother, uh, Clement, used to say, in my language, he would say, which means we have to turn around and look back at where we came from. And that's what this whole thing is about, about... Because on the one hand, we realize what, what damage is done to, to children once they come into care. However, sometimes we fail to realize that the damage really shows up when they leave the system, when they try to reconnect. Mm-hmm. When I did uh, social work, too, I came across a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, kids from uh, Sikhika that, that have grown up but have gone through the system. And when we're talking about from way, way back, when children were considered gifts from the Creator. Which means the Creator has given us the children to, to take care of. It's the relationship with, with uh, indigenous people and nature. Because our belief is uh, the trees talk to us, rivers talk to us, animals talk to us. Everything, there's a relationship. That's why there's that balance between the two. And it's the respect with each other. We respect nature, respect the animals. If we, if we kill an animal for food, we plant the tobacco. And we tell the, tell the, uh, the animal, Thank you for sacrificing your life so I can feed my people. That mutual respect. However, this is what happened when colonization came into the picture. The colonizers were up here, the colonized down here. When we're we're talking about indigenous people being colonized, it was like this. And when we're talking about calls to action, trying to write, get it up to this point where we have that balance. We have that respect each other. Where I can sit across somebody and say, I respect you because we are equal. Mm. And you respect my way of life. I respect your way mm. of life. And that's the work that has to be done. But how long is it going to take when you, to get it this way? Is it going to take all these 94 calls to action to finally get it this way? Mm. It's slowly and slowly. And it has to be people-driven. People have to drive it. Mm. And when I often talk about the three things about misunderstood, understood, and understand, that's where it is. This 
colonizers do not understand the people here. So they tend to keep it like that. Unless you begin to understand the people. And then when you fully understand the people, then you'll see that there's equality. Whereas indigenous people and nature itself, there was balance between the two because there was respect and understanding. And to me with children, children are the most important things in adults' lives, in a village life, in everything. Which means children are the most important. That's the beauty of still retaining the language to be able to understand because language and culture are, are tied together. For me to be able to fully understand, I guess my, my Sikhika way of life, to fully understand it through the language and the culture itself. But don't forget the 60s scoop, that was the result of the, uh, when they changed the Indian Act in 1951, when they allowed provincial jurisdiction to go onto reserves. And then th that's when they, the provincial workers started going into the in, onto reserves, and then you have a result of the 60s school. Legislations and all those, all those things that the government has, it's, it benefits them, it doesn't, doesn't benefit the mm. First Nations people. You know, and that's what you're working with, with some of those children that are affected by a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see the, both the federal and the provincial government provide more resources into family intervention to slowly make, at least uh, start to make that, make that headway. Are we seeing any improvement? So if you think about the numbers, um, we're not seeing any improvement. Um, so today, indigenous children represent something like 4% of, uh, of the children across the country. Um, and yet in Manitoba, they represent 90% of the children in care. So 4% 4, 4 of the population rep represents 90%. So you end up with multiples of risk associated with coming into care if you're in, just, just because you're indigenous. So I think that one of the points that you're making, Roy, is that fundamentally it's a racist system. Um, if we look and we say... Uh, uh, non-Indigenous children are actually investigated more often, but f Indigenous children files are open and children are apprehended more often. Yep. Mm. Um, and so in the, in the calls to action, one of the things that for me is, is, is um, a frame that really, you know, Murray Sinclair, Senator Sinclair calls it the cultural genocide, but um, too many people, I think, in, 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 and I'm a settler, and too many people in the settler community believe that we're in a post-colonial uh, phase, and we're not. 
we're very when you look at those numbers, we're still very, very much in a colonial phase. Um, we still perceive that indigenous uh, children are going to be at risk far more often than any other population. We still will take children into care who are indigenous far more than any other population. We still will transfer from temporary care to permanent care mm -hmm. indigenous children far more often. We will still move indigenous children far more often. Um, and so to not accept the racial basis of the system is to not address, as you described it, Roy, at the beginning, the root causes. And the root causes are colonialism, the continuation of colonialism, and the continuation of a racial belief that the white society is the society that knows what's best. And when you, when you send a social worker out to investigate a family, uh, what's, the, what's the framework that that social worker is using? Are they using an indigenous understanding of family or are they using a settler colonial understanding of family? If it's using the, the latter, then the indigenous will never be good enough because they don't parent in the same way. And so the deconstruction of the racial understandings of what's good enough, what's a child, what's a family, what's a community, what is parenting, what is the role of spirit, what is the role of culture, if those things remain defined by the colonial culture, then the indigenous culture will never ever be good enough because the thing that they're being measured against has no relationship to who they are. Um, and so one of the deconstructions in terms of the calls to action is to say you have to be able to step away from how you measure good enough as being somehow defined by the dominant culture. Um, and so you and I have had conversations, Roy, in, when you, in which you have said when will, we, when will we ever be good enough or when will we be seen as good enough by the white society? It's – to me, that's almost the wrong question. When will the white society stop determining what's good enough mm. yeah, for other side. peoples? Yeah. yeah. We talk about reforming child, child welfare. So we talk about re reforming how social workers are educated. We talk about reforming how social work is done. But it's a link in multiple systems. So if I'm a social worker and I go out and I apprehend a child – I have to appear in front of a court and have an order of temporary guardianship or interim guardianship. So I can reform the social worker but we have to reform the judicial system because of the judicial system that sits there and says what's, what's the weight of the evidence um, and what are the frames that the judicial system uses. The judicial system turns to the legislation. And what's the definition in the legislation of family? What's the definition of, in, in, of child? Um, and so – and that legislation in all 13 territories of Canada is determined by the provincial or territorial governments. It's not determined by the indigenous people. It's determined by the governments. So uh, you know, we can decolonize if you want the workers but if we don't pay attention to the other pieces of the system – then decolonizing the workers is actually 
only sort of putting a Band-Aid on what is a festering system. Um, and I uh, just – I'll stop in a second but just a very quick example. We have in the 1983, the Supreme Court of Canada issued a decision uh, called Racine v. Woods and in that decision, they determined that attachment theory – will be used to determine the placement of indigenous children. Mm. Um, well, in 2019, we're still battling that. We still, we're still battling that that's the, that's the predominant, that's the directive piece of uh, jurisprudence. But yet we know that attachment theory is drawn from indigenous, not drawn from indigenous cultures, but is drawn from the white cultures. And we're just downloading attachment theory onto indigenous people and then using it to keep indigenous children uh, in white homes or out of family care. Uh, so it's a huge deconstruction. If we don't start to say that the indigenous societies know the answers to their own issues, then the only thing we're left with is saying that the dominant society knows the answer. You know, Pete, I think uh, the other thing is uh, uh, when we're talking about good enough, I guess uh, to say when is the court going to determine when it's good enough for, uh, for, for indigenous children to, to be cared by the, by the family and the community, their own indigenous way of doing things. Because when you're talking about the attachment theory, I mean, that's, I've read about it, that's, that's, that's way, way out in left field when it comes to indigenous way of doing things. You know, the makeup of the family, you know. In Siksika, we don't have a, we, we, we don't have a word for, for auntie or uncle. There, there's nothing in there. My my older brothers and and anybody that's older than me, they're referred to as niece. That's my that's my older brother. My sister or anybody that's older than me, are, are females. We call them ninsta. Those are my my older sisters. My late mother's siblings would be my parents too. My grandparents and their siblings are my grandparents. I don't look at it, look at it as my mother's brother is my uncle, my mother's sister is my auntie. There's no such thing like that. It's when all these things were starting to be imposed on us. And then when we start looking at, looking at child welfare, Using the uh, using their template to determine kinship, who takes care of who, so on and so forth, then you start to see that it's never re it's never worked in the past. I don't think we have a single example anywhere in the world where one culture defining family for another culture has worked. Don't think we've got a single example. <laughs> And yet here we are having a conversation about, you know, white social workers determining what family is for Desiree. <laughs> hmm. 
That's very funny, sorry, but it's not funny. <laughs> I'm just trying to be nice to her. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I could say a lot of negative things about mm -hmm. this whole thing, you know. To me, the word I, I, I would use it, it sucks. It sucks for, it has, I don't know how many times I can say it, but it's, it boggles my mind on, on what, 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 uh, what the system is trying to do to indigenous people. That's the part I'm talking about, you know. That's the part I'm talking about when, when that when the, the, the judges are being are able to say, we will respect their way of doing things. So we're going to have the children back. They can look after it themselves. They know how. But instead of that, they use they use the system, the template to try and fit. It doesn't fit. Let's face facts. It will never, never fit. But, you know, in the future, what might lead to something in the future is, uh, I hate to say this thing, but for indigenous people to come up with their own welfare, child welfare, I would rather see a time where indigenous leaders that are up there to be able to say, we're not going to allow our kids into care anymore, period, no more, nothing. And then to tell the governments, we want you to put more resources into, into family prevention, keeping families together. The other important thing is, uh, is the language and the culture. Mm -hmm. Start injecting the language and the culture back into the uh, into the young people. Because once you have that, then you have the identity. It's people like myself that still speak the language. It's my duty to pass the language down. That's my duty. But you know what? Sub subconsciously, it's because of the residential school. Mm. You know? Because there's still that sense of shame around language still when we were not allowed to speak uh, our language at the residential school, you know. Mm -hmm. I like to be able to sit down with a, with, a, with a young fellow or a young girl and speak to him and her in my language. But that's not the case. I think one of the things you've taught me, Roy, is that why language matters so much is that there are words and concepts yes. in Blackfoot yes. that we in English can do nothing with. We don't know what that means. And so when you try to take a concept from English, it, there isn't a Blackfoot equivalent. And, and so what's happened is society hasn't really cared whether there's a Blackfoot equivalent. We've said, oh, well, then we'll use our equivalent. We'll use our definition. But the nuance of what it means to be Blackfoot, you have kept you keep teaching me is rooted in understandings that exist within the language. And so you're describing that if we don't create the pathway for the language to exist, 
then those things are going to be lost. And it's about, when we talk about the culture, it's about embodiment of the culture, the things like what you're talking about, the concepts. The concept of gimma pipitsin. Gimma pipitsin is kindness and compassion. You have to embody it. Once you embody it, you live it. Once you live it, then, then it's shown. But when you look at the word Gimma Bibitsin as just the word, it's not going to go anywhere. But once you embody it and believe in it and live it, then you begin to see the, the concreteness of the, the concept. Gimma Bibitsin goes way, way back where leaders, chiefs had to have, and I'm saying had to have, as part of their selection as leaders. They could be great warriors, they could be great providers and all these things, but one of the things they must have is for the people. That's why in our culture we say, now you're a chief or now you're a leader. All, all of your people are your children. And then once you embody that, ah, okay, now I understand. Which means, yes, helping people outside of your, 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 your role as a as member of council. Well, I'd like to go back to something that Desiree described um, where she talked about rediscovering her, her culture. She talked about rediscovering being indigenous. And that's one of the, I think, one of the most dramatic points of the child intervention system is you take the identity and the child welfare system begins to hold the identity and holds the identity away from the child who then is somehow supposed to be creating an identity in a system for, which is in a world which is foreign to the child. And then, like Desiree described, you then become teenager, you become an adult. And now you have to figure it out all over again. But there's 15, 20 years of foreignness in your <laughs> being. Um, I could definitely speak to that. Um, being in foster care, we were, I'm going to just say whitewashed to such an extreme that for me, I present as light-skinned. I could pass for many cultures, many identities, but my family, we're all brown, like very brown. I have seven siblings in my family from my mom. Um, and going into foster care, we were separated in different homes. Sometimes we were together. But in the foster homes that we were in for long-term, like long periods, these foster homes actually whitewashed us in such a way where we were abused for being brown for you know being together as like a unit as 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 a family because we became nurturers caregivers as a young age like for me I was a child parent like growing up and in the those dynamics you know family dynamics are different so we were basically our culture and identity was beaten out of us to a point where we identified and were prejudiced against our own kind 
like our spirit, our culture, identity completely ripped from us, where we thought it was a form of survival to identify as being white and that our skin color was that one identifier that we were not white and we hated ourselves. So exactly what you said is those those patterns of being lost and our spirit away from us and it led to addictions it led to like suicide like attempts like and I'm speaking from my own experience and our family dynamics were definitely messed up like mm. even now in my family it's hard for us to come together and bond mm. because we come from different beliefs different structures how we grew up like all fragmented so it 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 was a challenge um to start identifying even as first nation and that's you know those those kids who are like sick sick and they're like proud but they don't know their language yeah. but at least they're identifying now at least they're they're saying like i am first nation mm. Mm. and i'm going to say it out loud to come back to my culture and my roots which has been a process i had to awaken within myself and realize I need this connection. I need this to find myself. And that only came till I was, when I was like 24. I'm 28 now. And um, it has been quite the journey of like healing. I understand and know how important that is because even just regaining that, I got into university. Um, you know, I started to follow like the ways of our people and and as I learned and integrated and became more spiritually in tune with myself and also like being a role model and showing my family my siblings how to do that because both generations of my parents are passed on my my cook and my musham um my mom and my dad and those are from intergenerational like addictions like trauma the oldest of us now are are regaining our culture, our identity, and bringing that to our, our siblings. But it's it's not easy. It's so, it's it's difficult. Like, from, like, a social work perspective, I'm like, this is, like, a code of ethics violation. I need to, like, <laughs> I need to, like step back because this is my family. But um, coming together and being together and, show, and role modeling for myself, it's actually healing my 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 siblings and I, and, you know, just like coming to the culture, getting gifted my spirit name, that was a huge, huge turning point for me, actually. Identity and um, culture and language, they're so important, too, and that's something that we're still learning to come back to, but the fact that we're, there is youth out there, like I even work with youth who, who want to learn about their cultural ways like spiritual ways they want they don't know what smudging is and that's what where I come in like I'm in a group home right now as a spiritual cultural worker mm -hmm. in a group home agency which this is a new title that was made for me there was a need so they brought me in so I'm showing these kids how to smudge how to like respect themselves bring in those values and morals that are, are our people and also, like, the cultural ways, like, sweating or, like, you know, really connecting, grounding to our spirit, bringing back that identity. Because what I lost before, I regained back. And now I want to bring that back to the to the youth. And it's you been really... Wanna, you don't want to lose it again. Yeah, definitely not. And I'm still learning. But, you yeah. know, it's a process. But I, I understand from both sides the the pull, the give and take. And, and it's it doesn't work, but we cannot keep... 
we cannot keep isolating what the problem is. We need to go into, okay, well, that's the problem, but there's solution. We need to come to a place of understanding and accepting on both sides of the spectrums and, and come together in that way. And it sounds really cliche and whatever, but it's not. I've, I've, I'm working with kids and youth who, who I'm bringing in this opportunity and they're taking it and they're like, I want to learn all these different things, these different concepts, but it has to be in a gentle way. Like we can't inject the language into the youth. It needs to come from that anti-oppressive way or like where it comes from them. And that's where they really enjoy and they take hold and they fly. Like only in the last like few weeks I've been working with some youth and the changes in their behavior and the way they view life is like been so phenomenal like I'm just so grateful to be of service and help them but it's 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 a process like it doesn't happen overnight but I really do know that when we bring in that spirit and culture and in a holistic or trauma-informed way and understand that's what brings the true change mm -hmm. within the systems and we need to definitely bring it from the system point of view one of the things though that you talk about you say this is my story Hmm. I think that in various ways we've been hearing your story over and over and over again hmm. from thousands and thousands and thousands of indigenous people yeah. who have gone through, as Roy's described, the residential schools, the 60 scoop, the millennial scoop, mm -hmm. the overrepresentation. And what we're really talking about is not just your story. Your story is representative of a collective story um, of how we have how we have treated indigenous people for generations. Um, and if we collectively in mm -hmm. social work uh, don't face that, that we have been historically the agents of colonialism in our mm -hmm. profession, then we run the risk of simply whitewashing the problem, as you've described it. So the value of the story, to me, is it is a voice that is joined by choirs of voices with similar stories. And the question is whether or not the rest of us are listening. Because you don't get action if we don't start to understand. Exactly. I mean, you're doing your part at, at work and whatnot. That's what you're doing. And I'm doing my part here in this institution and, and out there, you know. But what is it that, that we can really do? What is it that, I, uh, that, that, that the government can be able to say, yeah, they're good enough? They, they can look after their children. Why, why should we be involved in it? What's that going to take? To me, it's going to take the leaders on top. Yes, but it takes agitation. Yeah, the, 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 the leaders on top, like I said, to be able to say, no more children in care. We're not going to allow any of our children to go into care anymore. No more. Period. That's it. And the government has to listen. Because, yes, uh, I'm, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this... Uh, this whole business of, uh, of looking at 
children, looking at the numbers and whatnot. And we as adults are allowing it, allowing a lot of these things to happen. And we're still trying to put our heads together, still trying to figure out what is it that, that, that we need to do. All I'm saying is give it back to us, our responsibility. Give it back to Siksika so we can, we can try to uh, uh, work it out ourselves. Well, the state makes a lousy parent. Aye? The state makes a lousy parent. <laughs> um, and, and we have examples in Canada of some First Nations who have taken responsibility. Um, and uh, you know what? The outcomes are better. So why do we think our outcomes are not that good? So why do we think that somehow we've got it figured out? We don't. It would be one thing if, if uh, the dominant society could look at you, Roy, and say, we're doing a good job. Uh, I'll say BS. But we can't because the outcomes are not good. If you're raised in care, your chances are exponentially higher that you'll have an addiction problem, a mental health problem, course, early pregnancy, course, unemployment, uh, homelessness, poverty. So if we're doing such a good job, why is the outcome so bad? <laughs> and so tell me why, why we should stand in the way of First Nations taking responsibility for their own children. Yeah. We can't stand up and say, well, the reason why is because we're doing such a good job. There's like the money aspects, the politics of it all, and the parental messed up um, cycles of it all, the system and how it brings in money. I think it's corrupt in a lot of ways, like the system and moral values, um, where the government is at in general, like even with, with people, <laughs> it's, it's, it's terrible. I, I just see that cycle in my mind of like, you know, how the government works that way. It doesn't serve the people, it serves itself. And yeah, it's pretty corrupt. So <laughs> I'm not, I have no business in politics or anything, but <laughs> you know, I have nothing. I just love to help people. And, uh, but but to come back to your point, though, um, large numbers of Canadians do not understand what, is, what colonialism is. Large numbers of Canadians do not understand what assimilation is. Large numbers of Canadians uh, know almost nothing about the residential schools. And if you, if you, next time you're at a coffee shop, try sort of throwing the term the 60s scoop out and see how many people in the coffee shop know it. It's, oh. <laughs> it's, it's like, you know... We know it because we're talking about it, but the people who elect the politicians, far too many of them do not know these stories. Mm. And so we still have people, and I, I, I sound frustration because I had this conversation on the weekend in a coffee shop of people mm -hmm. who say, no, it's not that bad. You know, you just have to figure out the solutions for today. The history doesn't matter. And it's like, how uh, it, it, it's this bizarre thing that there is still a massive disconnect between the majority of Canadians and 
the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So that's one of our other hurdles is that uh, when we want to go and talk to the politicians, they say nice things and I think a lot of the politicians actually believe that they can do something. But the people who go to the ballot box and put their X on, on the ballots, too many of them don't believe this is a problem. So there's the, to your answer, how do we solve it? I mean one of the, one of the things is we still, we still have large numbers of Canadians who don't think this is a problem that needs resolution. You've been listening to Racing Reconciliation, a collaboration between Mount Royal University's Iniskim Center and the Calgary Journal. Thanks to Roy Bearchief, Desiree Pagan, and Peter Choate for participating in this discussion. This episode was produced by Nathan Woolridge, Brian Wells, and myself, Ricardo Andres Garcia. Thank you to Dion Simon for our podcast artwork. Please stay tuned to our next episode.